Last week we looked at the short summary of the way the church was doing during those first days, where the church stayed hungry for more teaching about their faith, where fellowship and generosity abounded, and where they warmly embraced the act of worshipping together, both in smaller settings like their homes, as well as meeting in the temple courts. The end result of this was a great sense of favor from the people around them, and there was a daily occurrence of people making Christ their Lord, and they were cleaving themselves to the church in a really huge way. This week we're going to go into, into chapter 5, and it's a passage that, like I said earlier, is a bit of a, a potential preacher's minefield. I've never heard this preached on. I've heard this used in offering contexts. Uh, I've heard this almost with a bit of a manipulative threat hanging over it as you give you know, at the offering place, but I believe we're going well beyond that today. And, uh, but we're going to get into a, I'm going to give a quick overview of where we need to, what, what we sort of t- fill in the gap from last week's church setting at the end of chapter 2 through to chapter 5. Let's just quickly go over this. As we go into chapter 3, we see that the church begins to get a little bit more heat from the legal and political side of the city. Peter and John have been on their way to the temple, and in their travels, they've been involved in a rather high-profile miracle. There's been a beggar uh, begging by the temple gates there, and, and he's obviously a well-known local identity. He's been there for years, and, and he, these guys are looking up, hoping to get a bit of cash, and Peter and John decide, no, 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 in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this guy ends up walking, and in a very air, massive air of celebration, is walking with them into the temple to pray, into the temple courts to pray. While the powers that be have had tried like mad to play down Jesus and the disciples' claims about him, what has just occurred is something that no one can deny. And when the news gets out, Peter is then able to proclaim Jesus again to a great response from the people at large. As we come into chapter 4, we see that the law is now getting involved and Peter and John get arrested. And they end up spending a night in a lockup for doing a miracle. After this, they're presented to the Sanhedrin, the council of 70 men chosen to clarify and judge the intricacies of the Torah law. The opposition has begun, and they've been legally ordered to cease their preaching and their miracles. I mean, could you imagine that for a moment? Now, we're going to give you a caution, and we're going to tell you in the name of the law to stop doing what God is doing. Good luck. Good luck. We don't want you to do no more miracles. Stop that. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop doing all this wondrous, amazing stuff. Stop finding paraplegics on the street and letting them walk and have their life back. Stop all that. Go on in the name of the law. Stop. And pretty much Peter's Peter's comment of, we're going to do God's will, not yours, pretty much says, listen, you can't contain God. God's doing something here and you can't really stop us because that would be stopping God. It's a pretty futile request that's going on here. The rest of the chapter is dedicated to the response of the church uh, to its first bout of persecution and opposition. And their response here is really amazing as we look at this. They're getting opposed. They're getting persecuted. They're starting to feel uh, a bit of pressure about who they are as a body of believers. This is their response. One, their message stayed the same. As Peter proclaims his spirit-led defense to the Sanhedrin, We see that Jesus is still risen. God, he was still God in the flesh. And he's still the one that Jewish scripture points to. And he quotes Psalm 118 to back his statements up. There was no watering down of his message. And there was no softening the blow to avoid the extra scrutiny of the audience in front of him. You know how sometimes we soften it because we don't want to offend certain people? These guys had his life in their hands. And here he is not backing down. 
You know, there's a bit of a tendency today to try to make the message of Jesus as palatable and politically correct as possible. But the message of the cross is one of love for mankind demonstrated through a really brutal means. It's not a pretty deal, and Peter and John make no attempt to hide that fact. Love does all the softening that needs to be done in people's hearts for the truth to set in. Watering down the message does not have that same effect. Instead, it cheapens the salvation we receive, and more often than not, it sets people up to actually walk away when things get tough. If you give a sugar-coated gospel, when tough times come, they will, the sugar will dissolve. The message stayed the same. Prayer did not cease. They met together. They recognized the scriptural and spiritual work underpinning the opposition they were receiving, and they sought the boldness of the Spirit instead of permission to stop speaking. We see the fellowship didn't stop. We heard last week about the sense of favor that was on the church in those early days, and it was enough to cause 3,000 people to quickly join them and more each day. In these two chapters, we see that favor with the people at large continued despite the opposition they were facing. And we read in chapter 4, verse 4, that on their day of arrest, the church had grown from 3,000 to 5,000 people. You see, there's something special about the persecuted church in relation to the revival it experiences. We've spoken about this a bit in the course of this year. As we read the book of Revelation, the churches of Asia Minor that were persecuted were also the ones with the greatest sense of favor about them. In today's church world, the, the churches which grow the fastest are in the regions and in the countries where Christians are placed under their greatest duress. It has actually been said that the Eastern Church, particularly the Chinese Church, actually prays for us in the West with the request that we get persecuted in order to grow. Thank you, Easterners. <laughs> the Jerusalem Church had it together before hardship came. And they stayed that way through the hard stuff and the revival in their city never ceased. With all that out of the way, we now pick up the story coming into the end of chapter 4 to give a bit of context and then into chapter 5. And, uh, and uh, let me uh, just get my glasses here. I've realized I turned 38 a couple of weeks ago and had an eye test. And here we go. There's the big un- uh, reveal. <laughs> the glasses club. It's only for reading. And only that. <laughs> it's funny though, because I, I do this and I'm looking at the computer and then I look up at the TV and I look at you right now, you're all a blur. It's really, it's really cool. <laughs> all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now we get into chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full of knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. And Peter says to her, said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At the moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow. The Jerusalem church, as we read this, up to this point, is at the strongest point it will ever be. As we learned last week, they were going great guns as a body of believers. And it was the perfect environment for revival to occur. But it was so perfect that Satan knew he had to break it up. When the church has its act together and is fully functional, that's the time to be on the lookout for forces that will try and stop the flow. Unity, prayer, fellowship, they all sound like beautiful things, and they are. They are amazing things for the church to adorn herself with. But they don't come without discipline and diligence. And that's the honest truth of the matter. The first wave of attack came from the external source of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. The external issue of persecution and opposition. We read here that this wave of attack backfired and the church got stronger. And it's here that the enemy will then launch his second wave. The internal one. He shows his colors with this particular incident, and along through the whole New Testament, we see that he had a whole lot more cracks along the way at trying to create internal disaster for the church to try and break up the flow of what God was doing. In Joshua, we read about, a pe- uh, about the people of God entering the Promised Land and taking on their first act of contact, conquest Jericho, the walls of Jericho. Jericho was the oldest city in the region and had the longest ties with idolatry and paganism. And it had to go. It was also a city where the spoils were to be left where they were and consecrated so that God said, you touch them, you die. While the people of God were doing great things, Satan then went look for a person who was willing to blow it and mess it up for everyone concerned. And that stupid guy that he found in their midst was a guy named Achan. You read about him in Joshua 7, and he decided he wanted some of the spoils of the city. And the result was a military defeat that should have been won. The people of God were now unnecessarily questioning God. And 36 men had been killed on account of his sin. When he was exposed by God and judged, favor was then restored to the people of God. In the book of Acts here, we find that another Achan was found. In the midst of the generosity that was going on, we get to the story about amazing, an amazing man of God called Joseph, or Barnabas, as we later hear about him, the son of encouragement. He was a much-loved and celebrated member of the church, and Luke makes special, special note about his gift to the apostles. 
He, like the others, laid his gift at the feet of the apostles, not the hand of the apostles, signifying that this was, a, this was not a gift to the apostles, not a means for their income, putting it in their hand, but it was at their feet to be given for the use of the church. It was uh, for the people that they served. They put it at their feet saying, this is for the church and for the people in need in the church. It's interesting to note that the most humble of men and women in the Gospels and in Acts are the ones who get the greatest literary attention. And it was because they just never sought it. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's how the principle goes, right? But in this, but we, this story of humility is immediately followed by one of a deceitful opportunist. Barnabas has done something in the right heart, and the next in line to give is Ananias. Before he and his wife got there, they had conspired to keep a part of the cash for themselves. It says that they kept it back. And the Greek tells us that kept back translates as no shizomai, which means to embezzle or misappropriate. From the use of this word, it is believed that, that, that this was in fact a pledged amount, not a spontaneous thing. And they'd actually vowed, previously vowed to do a certain action, but on game day, they'd changed the rules. As Ananias moves along in the queue, he sees the sacrificial nature of everyone else. And to keep up with the Joneses, or in this case the Barnabases, he makes his move. He makes his demeanor look like, look like he's giving everything. He comes with his head bowed. He looks like he's mourning and like this is deeply costing him something. He gives all the indication he can to communicate that he's indeed being every bit as sacrificial as Barnabas and everybody else. And in that moment where there should have been a time of great rejoicing, because how many know when you give, there, is a, there should be an element of rejoicing because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. When you give in cheerfulness, God does something really amazing in your heart. Well, there should have been a great bit of rejoicing. Ananias instead commits his greatest sin. Everything in him wanted to belong. And he wanted to look as holy and righteous and generous as the next guy. But Ananias wanted the appearance and the credit for being so without the inconvenience of getting it. He wanted a reputation that he had no right to have and he would lie to gain it. Instead of genuine concern for those in need, Ananias is seeking to have his profile in the church lifted, his ego stroked, and in his superficial need, he chooses selfishness in his heart despite an outward display of righteousness. If we take the offering plate away here for a moment, we can see this sort of thinking is, is prevalent in the church in so many ways. So many Christians can work in a very Ananias sort of mindset in a number of ways, and I know I can do it too. We want to be seen as people of character, but we give in to our flaws without seeking help. We want to be seen as generous, but sometimes we give little. We want to be seen as spiritual, but our Bibles are gathering dust and we repeat what others say regardless of accuracy and God hasn't heard from us in ages. We want to be seen as faithful and godly, so we make our weekly appearance on Sundays but leave it all at the door before we engage with our week. Anytime we prioritize form and appearance over power and substance, we can end up at risk of being like Ananias in our hearts. Like Achan at Jericho, the enemy has found a guy in Jerusalem who can do great damage from within because he is willing to be deceitful to his fellow believers. 
And for the first time in its young existence, the church has been exposed to an act of secrecy which violates the character of openness and honesty that the church had at the time. Like Achan and the flow-on effect back then, this had great potential to destabilize the move of God in the midst of the church. Through the act of one selfish guy, the church is at risk of losing its innocence. You know, the world has, the world has a word for this sort of thing. Hypocrisy. And the gross hypocrisy that was now present in this church, as we read here, could stop the progress of the church in its tracks. So as we read on, we see that the Holy Spirit exposes it. Proverbs 6 tells us this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up dissension in the community. In other words, actions exactly like those of Ananias and Sapphira. Through divine delegation, Peter is given the awful task of being the guy who has to deal with this issue at hand. There is no getting around the fact that the attitude and actions of this couple were the complete opposite of the very things the church stood for. Even today, the issue of hypocrisy in the church does loads of harm, doesn't it? Every time we hear about a church leader that has been exposed in their conduct, the church takes a collective shudder up our spine and we kind of brace ourselves for the backlash, don't we? We see it on TV and all of a sudden we're put in that same nest as them and we're getting ready for it in our workplace, aren't we? We're getting ready to hear about it ourselves. The church is described as a body for good reason. You know, if a member hurts or is hemorrhaging, Every one of us feels it. When I was a kid in grade three, my sister and I were wrestling over my dad's 16-pound bowling ball. Great thing. Awesome ball. It was great. It, had, it was perfect fingers, and I used to love using it as a teenager myself. But we were fighting it in grade three, and my sister goes, all right, fine, you have it. And I didn't have it. My toe did. My big toe. And I, when I'm in pain, you know I'm in pain because I don't shout or scream or cry. I run around in circles. I look dumb. I look silly. The toe, my the sixteen pound eight kilo ball on a grade on a grade three foot, bang, and here's me running around in circles. Why? Because even at my fingertips, I was in pain. Every ounce of my being was consumed by that little thing that hit my toe. The body of Christ is like that, isn't it? When one person hurts, it goes through the whole body. It was more than appropriate that this couple had to be addressed. And we see in this text that God would have no other way. Peter's response to Ananias shows that at every step of the way, he was responsible for his actions here. Ananias was in control. It was his land. It was his cash. It, Ananias was not in a position of compulsion here. No one would have looked down at him if he held a bit in his pocket if he didn't pledge it or was open about his plans or his intentions. He could even have actually gone up and go, Hey, Peter, we sold the land. We got this good profit. Everything's really good. But you know what? I really feel I've got to leave a bit in the bank in case I die and my wife needs to be provided for. So here's the rest. I pray that's a blessing to the church and I'm going to keep this bit. And you know what? If he was open and honest about that, it would have been fine. 
know, you know, two weeks ago, transparency is the complete opposite of hypocrisy. Transparency could have saved his life and his reputation. There's every chance he could have been celebrated in Scripture as a generous man and a good provider for his wife. Instead, he chose to build his ego based on the hollowness of lies. And Peter's response shows just how shocked he is. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Spirit? What made you think of doing such a thing? The English doesn't do it justice here, but the Greek shows the range of emotion present. Basically, he was saying, what the heck were you thinking? There's sorrow. There's a statement of shock in Peter's lips here. The church hadn't seen anything like it, and it was a cause of grief to the people, but more importantly, a cause of grief to the Holy Spirit, to God. The Holy Spirit had been openly and willingly mocked through the actions of this couple, and they were in a dangerous ground as a result. Verse 5 takes us into the controversy. Ananias falls down dead right in front of Peter. Peter didn't curse the guy. And the statement that he makes to Sapphira later is more experiential than prophetic. The Greek text tells us that the gravity is, as, as the gravity of his actions are exposed, it says here that the Greek word here means to breathe out the soul. And the word used there when he says he died actually is only used three times in the New Testament. And it speaks of people who died in what appeared to be divine judgment. Twice in this passage, because two people died. And the other passage was in Acts 12 when we read about King Herod. It has been said by some notable scholars that this was a good example of the sin which leads to death, which is spoken of in 1 John 5.16. And the fact that God personally got involved in the New Testament church in such a way, and the strong emphasis of lying to the Holy Spirit in Peter's charge against them, certainly helps us build that case. But moving along, it's fair to say that after exploring this text, that God truly hates hypocrisy in the church. It causes so much division and damage, and the person who remains in an exposed but unrepentant hypocritical state clearly has no place in the church of Jesus Christ today. If it's exposed and we refuse to deal with it, if it's in the open and yet we let it go without dealing with it, that has no place in the church. God shows us here in the most extreme way that such people need to be moved on. As the legendary scholar John Stott once wrote, fellowship is ruined by falsity. In the early church, there was no space for falsity in their fellowship. But as I conclude today, with sin dealt with, the church could move forward again. We read in verse 11 that a sense of fear fell on the church and those around them. The whole city heard about this and it freaked them out. The Jews were well aware of the idea of a concept called death at the hands of heaven. And it was a recognized Old Testament penalty. You read about it in Leviticus 10 and other passages. To hear of such an occurrence happening again in their midst would have sent a bit of a shiver down the spine of the city. And fear would have been a very natural reaction. There would have been no doubt from those that observed all this that God was clearly involved in this group of believers. And it's no wonder that fear came out of that. But then there's fresh life that follows. In the very next verse, God was moving as powerfully as before and, God, and the church continued to prosper. You know, Jen and I have seen this sort of thing you know, many times ourselves. 
where churches get hit by dark times. A leader falls, a, decisive, a divisive faction forms, a new initiative uh, you know, faces opposition. There's often a period where one or both party moves on or there's a repentance and a restoration process. But after all that and all the dust settles, the church is resilient because it's led by Jesus and it can move forward again. I can almost equate it to a bushfire. After a devastating effect on the landscape, the out of the ashes, new life blooms. Seeds get opened up, life can happen again. New life bloomed in Jerusalem after the controversy of hypocrisy and division. And for the first time in Luke's account, in the wake of its first major internal challenge, Luke refers to this body of believers as the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. The line had been drawn in the sand again. They were called out of the world and out of the controversies of the world and called to belong in something truly great, identified in Christ and formed together in his image, in his likeness, in his spirit. As we ponder this text, there's a couple of ways we can sort of think about this today. It's time to throw aside the hurts of past controversies. Every church, and I mean every church, has at some point in their existence had an image problem. The purest church in history, which is how I would define the church in Jerusalem in those days, faced its issues and the biggest and the highest profile churches in the world today have had their share too. But good churches bounce back and so do godly believers. But the best thing, of course, is to avoid getting to that place in the first place. And a good way to do that is to understand that you don't have to keep up with the Joneses to keep to, to, when it comes to the issues of faith. That's where Ananias went wrong. Trying to be Barnabas when he was Ananias. Barnabas translates son of encouragement, and it's a beautiful name to have, great nickname to have. Ananias translates as whom Jehovah has graciously given. You know what? He had every bit of potential to be regarded well in the church without having to lie about it. Instead, he chose falsity and deceit when the church was marked by honesty and transparency. That's what we as believers and co-laborers in the church are called to be. Marked by honesty, marked by transparency. We all have a race to run, but we're not racing each other. We're not trying to keep up with each other here. Our finish line is Jesus, not each other. You know, even in me as a pastor, 60 k's up the road are three very big influential churches. And if I live in their shadow as a pastor, I'm going to make that my finish line when my finish line is bigger things again in Jesus. If I choose deceit or if I choose my own flesh or choose my own things, I can get caught up in all these different things and I can be the biggest hypocrite on the planet as a result. But we all have a race to run. And we all have one destination in Jesus. And we all have our own responsibility to run that lane, stay in that lane, and keep our eye on the author and finisher of our faith. When we do that, the people beside us, whether they're running ahead or running behind, don't matter. We don't have to keep up with them. 
If Barnabas is doing a great thing next to me in the lane beside me, let him do it. That's for God's glory. If my great, if I'm going to be a late bloomer in the end of my life, I'm going to run harder. So be it. If I'm not achieving what the guy beside me is, and yet God is still blessing what I'm doing, I'm exactly where Jesus wants me to be. And if my gaze is fixed on Him and not each other, my heart will remain pure. I will not be caught up in the opinions of others, and my sole purpose will be to please Jesus, not please other people. When I please Jesus, there's no space for deceit and there's no need for it. Jesus knows my heart already. Run your lane. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And Ananias doesn't occur in our church. That's how it works out. Let's pray.